The following program may contain explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the news out of Mississippi is, well, a little troubling. Yeah, this is troubling a little bit. I know one day um, is one day, and we have to wait for some more numbers to see um, what this might mean. But And the numbers actually are not in for today. They usually are by now. Uh, but yesterday, 500 cases. This coming just, you know, two weeks after Memorial Day when things opened up in the state pretty much, um, it seems like there could be a connection uh, too early to tell, I guess, on that. I'll have to leave that to the experts. But what do you think? Luckily, the anchor was interviewing Pascagoula's mayor, who happens to be a doctor. Steve Dimitropoulos joined from his office, medical degrees on the wall, while wearing a white coat with his name stitched on it. And this expert did say, yeah, opening up the state indeed led to a spike in cases. Now, you might remember a little over a month ago, Mississippi's Governor Tate Reeves who's not entitled to have his name stitched on a lab coat, was on Fox News Sunday. That's when host Chris Wallace noted cases in his state were rising. And Mississippi had just experienced the biggest one-day spike. Governor Reeves explained it this way. What I would tell you is that we had a one-day spike. We went up to 392 cases that were reported early Friday morning. Um, We didn't have time to analyze the data before we made the announcement, and we're trying to be very cautious. And so we said, let's analyze the data over the weekend. And what we have found is that it was really a data dump. We got a large number of tests that came in from out-of-state private labs. So it was a one-day blip. So again, simple explanation for those high numbers, the out-of-state private lab data dump blip. Here's the thing, though. Two days ago, they had almost 500 cases reported in Mississippi. Yesterday, another 341. The state's health advisor in a press conference today sat next to Governor Reeves and said that people's behavior, as permitted by the state, are clearly killing their relatives. We're seeing young individuals, and we're tracking this back in our case investigation, who go out to a party, they're hanging out with friends, things that actually don't even meet the criteria for under the executive order. They're getting coronavirus. They're taking it back home and either they live with their parents or they live with their grandparents, multi-generational housing, and transmitting it to the older folks and it's leading to severe illness and even death at times. So this is something that we've been talking about, we've been predicting, and it's, and it's starting to occur. No way. Who could have predicted that? Everyone, every expert. The governor focused on the economy in the press conference. He was also asked about the Confederate flag that is embedded on the state flag. He uh, said, let's change it only by popular vote. So it's true. We might not get, we probably won't get huge spikes or outbreaks in places like Arizona or Mississippi. Mississippi's not going to look like Wuhan. The Carolinas aren't going to have coronavirus sweep through like the Lombardy region of Italy. But people think it's safe, and people think this is all over. But coronavirus is real, and it is still here, and it will be for some time to come. And it will be in ways that are worse than what a lot of people hoped for and what many governors promised. On the show today, I spiel about the ending of Cops. Oh, not the jobs, the TV show. But first, there's a real rift in journalism. We are rethinking standards of fairness. We're rethinking who gets to speak, who gets to express an opinion, who should never have that option. Some of these discussions have been thrust upon journalistic institutions, especially the New York Times, where James Bennett, their op-ed editor, 
stepped down after significant portions of the staff revolted. Ben Smith covers the New York Times from within. He is the New York Times media columnist. He is on to talk about James Bennett, Tom Cotton, and if the op-ed section is long for this world. Ben Smith, up next. Ben Smith is the media columnist for the New York Times. What else needs to be said? Well, he was the founding editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News, and he's worked for a lot of places, like Politico, The Daily News, The New York Observer, and The New York Sun, which was founded sort of the same way that This Land is Your Land was a, an angry answer to God Bless America. Anyway, I digress. Smith, in covering the media, is in the hotbed of the media, and I want to ask him about specific stories he's written in the last couple weeks, but also scan the landscape and zoom back a little bit to talk to him about how he does his job. Hello, Ben. How are you? Good. Thanks for thanks for having me on. So recently, the uh, editor of the op-ed section resigned, James Bennett, after running an op-ed from Tom Cotton. Many reporters and employees of the Times objected to that. So I want to I want to get into it a little bit. But first of all, there was the charge that this was a culture clash within the Times between what one writer, Barry Weiss, referred to as the young wokes versus people with an older, more uh, traditional view of free speech. Uh, there was pushback to that. But what what did your reporting show? Does the kerfuffle did the kerfuffle break down largely on generational lines? No, I don't think it did. I think I think it it broke. I mean, I think you know there in any there are a lot of different cross currents here, and I thought that was the most crudely simplified version in a way. Um, I mean, simplified is maybe overstating. I mean, I just don't think that was quite right. The um, no, but I think there were it was there were political lines that it broke down that I think go pretty f- across generations. I think younger people, mostly not all, are more comfortable expressing those arguments on Twitter and on Slack in a certain way. And so kind of like, but I think there are a lot of older times reporters who also have bridled at what they see as it's sort of institutional conservatism. I mean, this has been true basically forever, but certainly was true in the seventies and the eighties. And a lot, and some of those folks are, you know, seeing, seeing the balance tilt in a fight that they've basically been fighting for decades. When you say political lines, do you mean the actual politics of the reporters or employees who are supposed to p- sort of check their politics at the door to some extent? Or did you mean something else? I guess I sort of mean the journalist, the politics of journalism, you know, the question of, you know, what is the job is, is you know, what, you know, I think all these things overlap with each other, right? I'm, I'm not sure. It, it's not, there, it, it, there's no clean argument about like, I think we're for objectivity versus not objectivity. And nor is it, I am on the political left, you are on the political right. I think all of those things intersect in certain ways. Yeah. So in the discussion, in the public-facing critique of that Tom Cotton op-ed, there was a line about uh, supporting the safety of black colleagues that was retweeted by Times employees who are very critical of that. And I think your reporting showed, and if I'm overcrediting it, and there was other reporting that showed that too, but I think your reporting was the first that I was aware that this was crafted with advice from the union because... Yeah, let me tell the story. It actually wasn't crafted with advice from the union, basically the union moves a little slower than employees do on Slack. And so as the union was trying to figure out what to do, a bunch of the people in the Black at NYT group kind of set up a yet another Slack channel to figure out what to say. And 
as they saw it, that saying that it endangered their black employees was a way to sort of not make it seem par- politically partisan and to have it be focused on the work. Um, and so that was why they chose that language. The union then chimed in and said, hey, by the way, this has the advantage of your bosses can't discipline you for talking about workplace safety. And so I think that's another reason people shared it. It's interesting because it wasn't it wasn't the only objection internally to the piece at all. And I think there are probably people who are skeptical that it endangered anyone, but also hated the piece and, and maybe vice versa. Um, but that certainly was kind of the dominant one on Twitter. It, it also, you know, as somebody who is new to the New York Times, you know, I'm, a, I'm still kind of taking it all in and figuring it out. I mean, I think there is also an argument that Tom Cotton could get us all killed, but whether he publishes that, in the New York Times or not, may not be the decisive factor. Was the objection informed by history beyond the very fact of that one op-ed? Was James Bennett, to many at the Times, a marked man, as he is to a lot of critics on the left outside of the Times? You know, yes, for sure. There was a lot, there had been, and I'm, I, you know, I'm, I don't have sort of the, all the examples in front of me, but there were a number of op-eds that had really angered people at the Times. Brett Stevens, who's a columnist, had had written some stuff about the most recent being about kind of Jewish native intelligence that really bothered people um, and, had, and had sent internal emails in a way that drove people nuts. I mean, there's a lot of sort of tension between opinion and the news pages. I also think, you know, the question of what the hell is opinion on the internet is really tricky. Like, you know, I mean, I felt this at BuzzFeed and at Politico where I work and we didn't have an opinion section for, deliberately. You know, it's one thing when it's sitting opposite the editorial page of the paper and you and, and your audience really understands that it's a different thing. It's another when you are trying to do your job as a reporter, first of all, and, the, you're, and you have colleagues who are who are trying to get traffic with the most outrageous possible thing, because that is how you get traffic in the opinion space. And an audience that, you know, can't really be expected to know the difference between one BuzzFeed URL with a one kind of header and a little picture of the guy and another BuzzFeed URL that has a different kind of picture of a reporter. And so you feel like you're getting, you know, you're trying to hold this, cent- you're, you're trying to be a, a reporter and you have these opinion columns kind of splashing into your space in a way that, you know, that can kind of get in the way. And so there's, I think, a lot of inherent tension these days between opinion writing and and, and um, reporting at places. I mean, and I think there's a kind of like controversialism that works really well in getting traffic for opinion that the you know that also winds up causing big cultural controversies that you know you're then a reporter making phone calls and people won't pick up the phone and it's frustrating and you feel and and I think it's very hard to distinguish and I just think none nobody's audience distinguishes news and opinion anymore and so I think that's sort of an overhang here like like HuffPost shut down its blogs for this reason and and I think there's a question of like should the Times be publishing people's blogs like I don't know. Did did the audience really ever? I mean, from time immemorial, it seemed that the news side of the newspaper, every newspaper, would go to great lengths to separate itself from the opinion side, and the uh, editorial would endorse a candidate, and there was uh, so much effort being put into the news side of every newspaper to say, well, that reflects the maybe publisher and the staff of the op-ed section, but it doesn't understand us. So I know that it's been 
exacerbated by Twitter. Yeah, I think I think the Internet makes it like maybe it was always kind of ludicrous, but I think the Internet makes it just invisible to any normal person. It's one of those things where you're saying like, no, look at our org chart. Like we're really, that's not my, my division that made that. And you're like, why are you asking me to look at your org chart? Like it's too confusing for any normal person. I mean, I don't know. I think conversely, when you had these big metro papers. Let me just, yeah, let me just interrupt to say, you said to any normal person, but isn't the crux of the issue, we're not talking about normal per- people. We're talking about people who worked for the Times that they themselves weren't interpreting that other people would say, oh, th- this speaks for you. They were saying to some extent, this speaks for me. And that was the objection. I think any journalist who's worked on the internet recognizes that most of your audience doesn't distinguish between news and opinion columns, particularly now that news reporters are writing something called news analysis a lot more is what they call it at the times, which is, you know, functionally indistinguishable from what a lot of reported opinion columnists do. Like, I just think the lines are so blurred, both at both in terms of what kind of content you see in which places and in terms of um, the way it appears online that we all, you know, that you're just constantly at a, yeah. So I think that it's sort of obvious on the internet that these distinctions have fallen apart. And so you're more sensitive to what happens on the opinion side. Whereas I do think in the old days, there was this real logic, you, you know, there was a Metro newspaper. It was often the only piece of media somebody was getting. If they, if they didn't subscribe to the nation and the national review, they might not see the arguments being made on the left and the right. And it made sense to expose them to those arguments. I guess I think that there's a real underlying question of, you know, what is opinion for that I think the paper is now going is, is gonna sort of, to wrestle with now. And the question of, you know, is it for pissing off your, your paying subscribers? Because that's a big part of it here. You know, it, it was important for newspapers to show advertisers that they spoke for the middle, that they didn't want, you know, that they spoke for both sides. They were going for the broadest possible audience. The business model now is to find a really, really passionate, big group of people, but not everyone. Your column of uh, June 7th, one thing that it talked about was how the Washington Post and other news organizations were trying to better define these blurry lines between opinion and straight reporting. Well, do you think that's even possible? Do you think there can be some definition, some articulated policy that maybe won't be 100% perfect, but is so good that it really answers the question? Or is it just a fool's errand to go down that road? I think it's very, I, I think that this isn't a science. It's not even like a profession, you know, journalism. It's like a I trade. Yeah. And I think the idea that you, and, and I think in a practice and a thing we all do every day and it's, and it's in the culture. And I think that you can have a culture that kind of understands what its lane is in a newsroom and, and what it does. And I think, you know, these written standards are sometimes expressions of that, but I think it's very, it's in this, the same text of the same tweet sent by the same person in a different moment can be, can mean wildly different things. And so I think the idea that you're going to kind of put down these hard rules and try to enforce them is pretty tough. So it seems like you're painting a picture of it just being untenable if it is, if we have essentially thrown our hands up and say that no normal person really gets the distinction. And if we also say that this distinction, whatever the uh, op-ed pages will run, will inevitably bleed into people's opinions of reporters. And if we also say that there's no way to articulate this to the public, I don't see how you're making a case that in five or 10 years, we're going to have opinion pages and straight reporting wedded as one. So what happens then? I mean, 
I think this is, I mean, having reported out that, you know, do you think my own bright idea about this? I think this will never happen. But I think you sort of have two choices. You fold the opinion pages into the news pages and hold it all to the same standard. Or you break them off a lot more aggressively. You launch a new app called, you know, Times Views on a new URL with a different design and giant pictures of the authors and you know, and, 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 and push it a lot further away. Like the guardian has come closest to this in that the page the opinion pages are bright orange, but I don't think it quite solves it. I, yeah, but I think this kind of ambiguous closeness doesn't really work. I mean, you know, it is interesting that the, you know, the piece that won the Pulitzer for the times this year was Nicole Hannah Jones's 1619 project essay. I mean, that's certainly the kind of thing that and the opinion section I would think would have wanted to run and to have won the Pulitzer and it came out of the magazine, which is, I would say, part of the whole mix here. Yes. I mean, it, it complicates it. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe the answer really is the, you know, just most of these people in the newsroom are young wokes. If you publish the opinions reflecting essentially the young woke worldview, everyone's happy, or at least the people no, who are- no, that, that's, that's not what I mean. I mean, like it won the Pulitzer, right? Like, I don't think the Pulitzer judges are young wokes. I mean, you can argue about, there's lots of great arguments going on about it, but it was the successful thing that the New York Times Corporation is really proud of that exists in what, you know, in an analytical space that you could run on an opinion page and didn't come out of the New York Times opinion pages. And so I do think there's an element of internal competition happening here too. And like, I guess I'm, I'm the last person to understand kind of the deep structure of the New York Times. I just got there. But, um, but I think if, I don't know, I guess my own view is that if you're a publication these days, you know, people are going to interpret you as more or less speaking with one voice. And so it might make sense to try to do that. What are the economics of it? Is is news driving the train? Is the opinion in terms of bang for the buck? Oh, well, the economics of it is that opinion is really cheap. Opinion is an incredibly cheap way to generate page views. And I think subscriptions too. I think people would be surprised. I've heard, I don't have seen the numbers, but I've been told by people who work there that, you know, Thomas Friedman, who like most of the internet is structured as like, you know, began as blogs criticizing Thomas Friedman, but it remains, you know, one of the huge pillars of Times readership and subscription. And the subscribers are older than, you know, the, than the folks on Twitter talking about the paper. And, and so I think subscription, the economics of opinion are pretty good in that it's, it's just, you know, if you're looking at page views per dollar spent, it's a lot cheaper. Yeah. Than, than reporting, which is expensive. Mostly using freelancers in opinion. I do like the idea of uh, everything on the internet becomes a reductio ad Hitlerum, but starts off as a criticism of Thomas Friedman. That is the journey that we all take. With every- that, that, yeah, I, do, I think maybe I'm sort of old enough to remember this, but I do think like the Times has always been in a particularly weird place on the internet because the kind of politics internet began really as a critique of the New York Times in a lot of ways. And so... How do you ever wriggle out from under that? It's very hard to know if the latest development that seems large in the world of journalism is actually a large uh, sea change or pivot point. A podcast I listened to from the National Review asked all of its panelists, do you think James Bennett resigning from the New York Times and Times reporters going on the record objecting. Is it a one-off or is it a harbinger? And of course, they all said harbinger because they're large critics of the New York Times. So the two questions are, 
Do you think it's uh, a harbinger? But then what are the ways that you, from your vantage point and your experience, determine when things are really consequential and pivot points that we'll always point to? You know, I guess I just think that the New York Times and you and me and every Facebook group and everything else are part of this very, this cultural moment of massive change. And, you know, we're in the middle of a historic pandemic and this civil rights massive wave of protest around violence against black people. And, and I think obviously these are incredibly consequential things and media is part of that culture. We're not separate. We don't stand apart from it. And I, so I think, I think it's sort of silly to say, you know, the New York times is such an important institution that things are happening there separate from what's happening in the rest of society. Um, that, and, and I think I guess I sort of answered the second question that way too, which is that the big stories are ones where you where you know where these big electrical currents the, of you know politics and media and technology where they run together. Like that's where you get the sparks. Ben Smith is the media columnist for the New York Times. Thank you so much, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And now the spiel. Well, I don't know if we could defund the police, but cops canceled. Not actual cops with actual badges. Well, in a way, the TV avatars thereof. We're talking about the TV show Cops. Well, after more than 30 years on the air, Cops has been canceled as a debate over policing continues. Cops is canceled. Eh, what you gonna do? Seriously. They came for Dog the Bounty Hunter. I said nothing. They came for Roseanne Barr. I was quiet. But cops, cops of cops, I always ask myself, what you going to do when they come for you? What you going to do when they come for you? I know what you're thinking about cops being taken off the air. Cops was still on the air. Also, there's still an air to be on? I guess there is. It was on the Paramount Network, a network, ironically, of minuscule importance. And as we talked about on this show when I interviewed Dan Taberski of the excellent podcast Running From Cops, the show was really pro-cop propaganda. Copaganda, I call it. In Running From Cops, Taberski interviewed Stephen Chow, who was the initial executive who first put cops on the air. And Taberski, great interview, put it to Chow, isn't cops just a version of police propaganda? How did it feel to be on the side of the police? Did you have mixed feelings about potentially not showing the other point of view, which may make you see police in a different way? Um, I was never conflicted. and I never thought that police and police brutality was a big issue in my life. I never really saw that. I mean... It's a theme that you have. Uh, is it? Yeah, it's the second time you've asked. Like, The truth is, nothing that these cops did suggested to me that they were, that they were wrong in any sense. I mean, I, you know, they were getting drug dealers and domestic disputes and stuff, so I, I thought they were doing their job. But no, I didn't have any conflict thinking I'm on the other side or something. No, that, that wasn't my conflict, no. Chow, the executive, continued to make his case. I personally haven't seen enough to get upset. Cops is just what it is. It's just, you can't question it. It is what it is. I can question it. Well, of course you do. It's now the third time. You can over-intellectualize it, but you shouldn't. I mean, you can attach bias to it, but that's kind of in your head. 
I mean, mostly. Well, actually, it wasn't. I'd say if cops wasn't on the Paramount network, which I think is the network that turns on automatically when you buy a new TV but is never tuned back to again, if we're on, say, a major purveyor of quote-unquote documentary entertainment, it would have been shut down a while ago. To think, take for instance, let's say there was a network newscast, ABC, NBC, and they were doing a story on Freddie Gray or Michael Brown, and then in the commercial breaks, Thursdays on Cops, someone would have noticed and someone would have said, we can't live with this any longer. Which gets into the issue of respectability. There's a lot of talk lately about how the police's reaction to the protests have hurt the police's standing as much as the unjustifiable killing which set off the protests in the first place. Maybe it's a debate between which is the match and which is the kindling, but the idea of respectability politics says that it is the well-behaved person, often a white person, and this person with an unblemished record, if that person were to make demands, but also if that person were to be assaulted by police, then it will move the needle more versus your average instance of police brutality. And when we begin to see that regular person over and over and over again, abused by the police, it sets in. So we have a situation of protests over police brutality being met by brutal policing. And the brutality towards thousands of protesters in hundreds of locales, these protesters having hundreds of thousands of people who know them personally, and the people all say, wait, I know him, I know her, he's not dangerous. And the people all say, that could have been me. And that's when things are changed. Or at least that explains why we're in the middle of the largest ongoing mass protests stemming from a single incident of my lifetime. So I don't know if we'll have real reform, deep reform, but they are canceling cops. And maybe A&E's Live PD, which is like cops for Twitch. Dan Abrams, the executive producer of that A&E show, says they're just taking it off the air for now. Don't worry, Live PD's coming back. So Dan Abrams sits on the live PD set and he directs action like he's some sort of incarceral rune arledge. Okay, battering ram from Bridgeport. Let's go to that now. Okay, let's take the anti-gang unit in Tulsa on three, two, one. His two colleagues on set are police officers who give the police perspective. His contracts to show this footage is with localities and police forces. When he was on The Gist, and he mentioned two or three times how his goal was transparency. I pressed him on that point. So now I'm going to play an extended chunk of that interview. It goes on for about three minutes. Is this transparency or is it more the appearance of transparency? And I ask that because obviously you work with the police. Things are shot sometimes literally through the lens of the police. Uh, a guy can be you know, talk to by the police and then the police go away. We stay with the police. We don't know what happened to that guy's life or the impact of him. So why is it transparent, not just in a pro-police yeah. way, but so that the communities who are being policed would feel like they got a fair shake? Well, for, first, let me just clarify something. We're not using the police officers' cameras. We have our own cameras. We have a dash cam. We have our own cameras there. You know, we're, it's not like we're plugging into the police's uh, camera system and using their system. But with that said, look, <clears throat> there are going to be people who are going to say, 
yeah, but come on, the police are going to be on their best behavior when you guys are there. And then when the cameras go away, you know, look, if that's the case, then great. I mean, great in the sense that if what we're doing is really going to make police officers think twice, think three times about what they're doing because there's a camera there, that's a good thing. I mean, look, that's one of the reasons I think that dash, that, um, that body cams are so valuable um, is because, in theory, <clears throat> excuse me, it's going to make police think long and hard. They're going to know. And by the way, it's also going to make the people who are arrested think long and hard about saying something that's not true. It's going to make the police officers think long and hard about saying something that's not true. Um, so I think that, that it has the same kind of effect psychologically as a as a body cam but look if we were on 24/7 we would have a, a better ability to show full transparency this is uh this is an effort at uh at transparency but obviously in a somewhat limited way because it's on from 9 to 11 on Friday nights and not 24-7. So wait, are you saying that the trade-off is if millions of people watch your show, come away with the opinion that the police are polite and that communities aren't over-policed or communities aren't harassed, that's equaled out by the fact that those 12 cops or whatever will be nice to those specific 12 people they're being nice to? No, what I'm saying is that if people come away and see police officers doing what police officers do every day, that's not a bad thing. If what you're saying is, unless we see police being harassed, we're, unless we see police harassing someone, we're not getting the real picture. I would say I didn't you, say that. I, I didn't say that. I didn't even suggest that. I just well, I'm saying did. you kind of did. I will you say what did. I'm saying. I will say what I'm saying. So uh, there's no mistake. In, okay. Yeah. Unless we're getting the real picture, we're not getting the real picture. If you but, partner with six police departments, of course they're going to want to put their best foot forward. Wait, and in fact, did, in fact, if they, clip, yeah. you played a clip at the beginning of this show, right? Yeah. Where you show, you had uh, a guy yelling at a police officer for stopping him, right? A guy who went on a, you know, uh, you could, uh, I think the guy went on a, a fair critique of why are you harassing me? Yeah. Why are you asking me what I have in my trunk? I think that's a perfect example of transparency. Do I think that that officer is going to be thrilled about the fact that that segment was aired? No. Dan Abrams no longer makes himself available for unfriendly interviews, by the way. It should also be noted that Abrams is chief legal affairs anchor of ABC News. Now, I am definitely, definitely not of the fire him for apostasy persuasion. I don't like people losing their jobs. And also, I cannot cite specifics of Dan Abrams' coverage on ABC being wrong. He seemed fine on the Mueller investigation. But I do have to say, if I were a person of color, or if I were a person highly motivated by the issue of police reform, and by the way, I kind of am, or if I'm just a fan of straight news without the appearance of conflict of interest, I think Dan Abrams' dual role as the ABC chief legal affairs anchor telling you what's right and wrong about the legal system, and Dan Abrams' godhead of the live PD universe, that would give me pause. If I were ABC... I might want to think about that. Dan Abrams will be fine. He makes a good income. And he also, for the record, did not take my suggestion about how to make his oh-so-transparent TV show even more transparent.
Look, you have two officers in the studio who offer context. That's great. I love to know how the police make their decisions. I think it would be interesting one week if you had maybe a civil civil rights lawyer join them. And and, and the purpose of that is to... Increase the transparency. In reflecting on this interview and the Running From Cops podcast and Cops and Live PD as institutions, I did remember another quote that Stephen Chow, the original Cops television executive, put forward. I knew that television could be a modern-day form of justice. It turns out that television, broadly defined as video, shareable video, YouTube, has in fact been just that, a form of justice. And I gotta think that taking the long-past-its-sell-by-date cops off the air is a small stroke of justice as well. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly, just producer, is fine with the cops thing, but she's worried about Paw Patrol. I mean, couldn't the Siberian Husky be a social worker? Daniel Schrader, just producer, is a little conflicted about going back to binge old episodes of Barney Miller. Not Wojo, not Dietrich, not Fish. The gist. So if it is indeed the case that airing the opinion of a sitting U.S. senator is enough to separate you from your job, I guess it proves once again that Brian Lamb left C-SPAN just in time. The timing with that guy. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.